Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Today, we're discussing human data analytics. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. And today, we're here with Jeff Locastro, founder and CEO of Neener Analytics. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here, and I, I'm certain I won't forget your name. <laughs> awesome. Jeff L. and Jeff K. There you go. Mirrorview judged you as one of the 10 most disruptive entrepreneurs to look for, which is an amazing statement. Being a pioneer in this field, what is it about human data analytics and small data that excites you? I'm innately attracted to things and narratives that no one else is telling, stories that no one else is telling. When people tend to go right, I tend to go left. When they go left, I tend to go right. Uh, just to be contrary because it's just more interesting. So when we talk about how we're solving this problem, you know, that big data versus a small data approach, no one has that conversation and you hear it every day. A call yesterday with a very large credit card issuer who we're also partnered with and they were like, I've never heard this before. Being able to get on a call, hopefully at the end of that conversation say, yeah, you're right, no one's doing this. This is, this is pretty cool stuff. That excites me. I often say that we're not a new flavor of ice cream. We're an entirely different food group. That's pretty cool. It also takes some explaining for people to understand. I have this, what I call the, the 20-40 rule. It generally takes someone about 20 minutes before they say, you know, I, I think I get what you're doing. And about 40, they say, oh my goodness, I get it now. And then they have questions because we tend to have to undo a lot of what they think we might be doing or what they preconceived notions. And that's just, that's just fun. Your company, Neener Analytics, talks of small data results in the big data world. What does this mean in layman's terms? The differences between small data and big data. The example I like to use is this. Back in 1940, when my grandfather bought his first house, he walked into the bank and the banker said, hey, I know you. His name was Bert. Hey, Bert, I know you. And that's what he meant. I know you. My grandfather walked into that bank as small data. He was small data. My other grandfather, in this example, if you were to walk into that same bank, the banker would say, oh, you know, I don't know you. Didn't live in the same city or state. I don't know you, but I know people like you. Big data. And that is the definition of big data. I don't know you, but I know people like you. Big data is nothing but bins and aggregations based on behaviors or affinities clumped together to create correlations that masquerade as something specific. But it's not. It's an aggregation. It's a pool of humans in a bowl that you're pulling them out of and giving conditions on them as to some kind of behavior that might result in something specific. Small data is an individual matrix on each and every human that manifests in binary outcomes. So the difference between a big data solution and a small data solution, big data produces scores and behaviors. It's another aggregation, scores and behaviors. And behaviors, you always need a behavior to make sense of the previous behavior. An outcome, this is what human beings, and when we're talking about small data in terms of AI, exactly the way human beings make decisions about other human beings based on an outcome, a binary outcome. So that's the main difference. And I explained it in what, maybe 20 seconds, but it's enormous in terms of what it reveals and how you get there. For example, the AI that we've developed makes decisions exactly the way human beings make decisions about other human beings, not based on what they talk about, but rather how they talk about those things, which is exactly what you're doing with me right now. You're not listening to what I'm talking about. You're listening to how I'm talking about it. 
because the what is big data. The what is the aggregation. The how is the small data. In the example of my grandfather, that banker didn't make a decision, say, I know you, based on that he was he lived in Chicago, that he was a White Sox fan, that he liked the color red, that he, he liked Italian food or whatever. That wasn't what he meant. He didn't say, you know, I know aggregations about you. He said, I know you. I know you. And the I know you comes from the conversations and communications he had with him over time based on the how my grandfather communicated with him and those produced binary outcomes, exactly what we're doing right now. I'm doing it with you. This is how human beings stay alive on the planet. We make binary decisions based on how people communicate with us, not what they talk about. When I'm talking to someone, I say, this is the code we've cracked. Being able to intuit what human beings do naturally to survive on the planet, moving that to be able to do it technologically, to be able to say to every consumer, I know you. You've been treating humans as either this third party thing we're, we're looking at, or maybe even these wonderful, innocent creatures. A lot of people, especially if they're working with your clients or with someone who's going to sell a product or assess some kind of risk, they have an incentive to game the system. Other words, lower the interest rate they're being charged or lower some other conditions that are being placed on them. So is what you're doing trying to overcome their ability, not to lie to you, but to give a false narrative? Or when they do that, do you have ways of looking at it, cutting through to the authentic? It's one of my favorite questions. Absolutely. This is one of my favorite questions. It's interesting because we tend not to get asked this anymore, but early on, absolutely. This was something, well, I just, I'll just be a different person. And then how do you do that? So this is not something that we focused on or a problem that we tried to solve, but it's absolutely a derivative of using human data, not aggregations of what someone might think is human data, but authentic conditions and domains that exist within that individual human being. It's really hard to change those things in a way that is authentic. How do you know, to your question, in an application process, consumers know what the right answers are, right? Mm -hmm. They know lots of money is good, not money is bad. They know lots of debt is bad, no debt is good. Uh, if you're talking even insurance, they know when the question comes to smoking in your health, they know which box to check. They know. Exactly. They're not the algorithm, but they know, right? Applications are by their nature a system gaming device because the consumer goes into it already knowing what the answer is. It's beyond cheating on the test. <laughs> when we're talking about human data and these conditions and domains that every human being possesses, that they innately communicate, that we're hardwired individually to channel to, how do you do that? Our AI, for example, could be listening to this conversation. Within the first three or four minutes, Aria would have been able to decision, both you and I, whether I will pay back the lender or whether I will not and whether you will. But we haven't talked at all about getting a loan because it's irrelevant. What is relevant in the world of lawyers is that... The lawyer question my second favorite question. Well, you're going to be <laughs> asked, well, great. If you're so good at this, then the next thing is put your hand over your wallet because, wait a minute, did I give you permission for all this really interesting information that you're getting from me somehow? Did I give my explicit approval or where is it coming from? Could you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. We were actually in Paris, May 30th of 2018, when the GDPR went into effect, as an example. And everyone was racing around trying to figure out, oh my God, are we compliant? We were, like, yeah, we're compliant. We're compliant by virtue of how we access the data. We're 100% opt-in. We're 100% opt-in, and this is self-created data. We fall right off the table of any GDPR or any 
privacy concerns. This is self-created data and 100% opt-in. Consumer knows what they're doing, why they're doing, and the benefit that they should receive from it. Which is why we have, for example, in Latin America, we have mid-90, 96, 97% opt-in rates. Globally, 87% opt-in rates. Is it because people understand someone's either mentioned to them or they infer that by doing this, they're going to get a better deal? Or, or is it just natural? Now, that's a cool question because it actually leads me to some of the social science implications of what we've discovered, not the algorithm, not the AI. That a part of the engagement is some kind of an incentive, right? They're, they're being told, hey, click here and something. For example, if our solution is being delivered to a consumer at rejection, hey, click here or talk to Aria, whatever it might be, depending on which channel the customer is choosing. And we don't want to lose you. We want to find a way to say yes to you. Sorry, we had to reject you kind of a thing. Click here and three and five rejections or whatever the ratio is for that lender become approvals. That's a very powerful incentive. That's a built-in incentive. In the application process, for example, there might be other incentives. Hey, click here and you have a shorter application process. You know, whatever it might be, they're incentivized in some way. But the interesting thing is that we do tend to see, we don't guarantee this, but it is a social science derivative of what we have created, about a 44% increase in completed applications. Well, that helps. That's huge. And we would see these things, for example, in a customer engagement, we would say, hey, look, you know, how many applications do you typically run? Now we run 20,000 a month. Okay, cool. And we were seeing 25, 24, 23, 26, 27. And we'd say, are you advertising this? Go, no, we haven't changed anything. And it took us about eight months to figure this out. What happened is that consumers were figuring it out. They were figuring out that they were suddenly, by this click, they were small data. Now, they weren't thinking small data. And I'll go back to the example of my grandfather. Why did that first grandfather go into that bank and not the other one? Because he knew that bank would say, I know you. He knew they knew. Exactly. We're hardwired for this, Jeff. We're hardwired for this. Now, that bank could have been 150 miles away walking distance, and he's still going to go there. He is not going to opt. No one would opt for, I don't know you, but I know people like you. No one would choose that. Every human being is hardwired for a small data engagement. And I know this to be true. Every time you walk into a new event, a party, a room where you may not know somebody, uh, the people that you look for, the people you don't know or the people that you know. You always look for the small data. It may be a nanosecond, it may be longer. We're hardwired for this. So it's that really cool social science derivative of what we've created. Consumers have just figured it out, which is wild. Because you mentioned social science and this very crisp, definitive outcome answer, it conjures up, is there bias, is it bad? Identifiers you start talking about, gender, race, and, and on. How are you dealing with those issues? Are they an issue for you? And if you, if you are have figured it out, share your secret because a lot of folks are struggling with that. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Our results are pre-balanced by nature. What that means is we're looking at conditions and domains that every human being on the planet possesses individually, just in different ratios. That no one, I'll use the example of you, your listeners have, you know, took, uh, you know, Psych 1A. And there's always a conversation in a psych class about conscientiousness. We've got over 600 conditions and domains that we look at, most of which we've discovered, but conscientiousness is certainly in that pool and the one that most people understand. Conscientiousness. No protected group, no race, gender, creed, religion, height, weight, orientation, pick a protected group, pick a strata, pick a channel, has the franchise on conscientiousness. Nor are those same groups disenfranchised by nature of their group, disenfranchised from 
conscientiousness. Now, conscientiousness certainly might have implications how you were raised, who your parents were, how they brought you up, the values that they instilled, but it has nothing to do with your skin color, has nothing to do with your gender, your height, your weight. Pick a protected group. These are conditions and domains that manifest themselves individually in human beings. And we have gone through our fair lending analysis in the U.S. And we knew going into it, we were probably going to see a pretty flat line. And that's exactly what we saw. Completely flat. Zero. Zero bias. These human conditions by nature don't discriminate based on your religion or your skin color, whatever it is. So we say, look, our results are pre-balanced by nature. They are. And we've been looking for someone to come out and say, no, they're not, you know, to, because my goodness, we'd be on the page of every paper on the planet. Who would say that? If you said it, you're insane. Uh, and it's just, it's simply not true. Which is why when we go from, we say, look, you know, American humans aren't different than Brazilian humans. Brazilian humans aren't different than Colombian humans or Mexican humans. Their culture is different. Absolutely. Big data. The food they eat is different. Yeah. The music they like. All big data aggregations. But the human conditions that we all share, which may have been influenced by the culture and these kind of, but we don't care about that. All we care about is the you. How did it end up in you? And none of that correlates to your skin color. It's a small world after all. Absolutely. To leave the folks listening with some, some very actionable things they can do, what are the three things that someone listening can take from this discussion and go make something happen in their own workplace? I always say, look, we can't help you unless you are willing to admit that there's a problem. I chuckle when I say that because it's one of those things, you know, the blinding flash of obvious, but we do find it. Sit down and understand and be honest. Do you have a problem? Is this a problem? Do you want to say yes to more people? And I don't want to sound salesy here when I say that, but that has, as we've discussed, global implications. Do you want to say yes to more people? Is it a problem? The second thing is understanding, are you going to approach this problem as a risk mitigator or a risk minimizer? Are you going to understand the cost benefit to this? Or is this only about trying to figure out a way to maintain the status quo? If that's what it is, we can't help you there either. And the third is in that balance, as I mentioned, I think earlier, is the problem we're solving bigger than any risk that you would take in understanding how this solution will affect you. If you can do those three things, we can absolutely help. We have never, and Jeff, this is not entrepreneurial hyperbole, and I sometimes hesitate saying this, we've never had a situation where it didn't work. Not once. We're 11 countries. It works every time. We've cracked this. Those three things, and it really does start with admitting that there's a problem, and in any engagement is deciding who that champion in the organization is going to be. It has to start there. Who's going to champion this? Who's going to own this? and bring it through because you will come out the other end seeing, oh my gosh, it worked. Three strategic questions, whether or not they see the wisdom in approaching you folks directly or initially trying to work through some of those questions themselves. Great to think about. And thank you for, uh, for sharing those with us. My pleasure. What resources do you recommend so people can learn more? You can uh, always reach me directly at jeff at neener, N-E-E-N-E-R dot net or our website, neeneranalytics.com. We're happy to uh, engage quickly and perform an impact audit for you. If you're willing to share a little bit of information on your transaction role, and we can show you in about five minutes what the expected outcomes should be and to see if you want to move forward. But that's the two best ways to reach out and show you that it does work. Everyone, you can find details about everything we've covered, including contact information on our show notes and transcripts. 
at infosys.com slash IKI in our podcast section. Jeff LoCastro, thank you so much for your time and a very interesting discussion. My pleasure, Jeff. It was a joy. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, Christine Calhoun, Dylan Cosper, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.